have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 2, we'll pick it up at verse 13. If anybody's keeping track, this is our fifth lesson in the book of Mark. And um, if anybody cares, I know we need it for the church website. The, the name of this is Jesus Parties with Sinners. I was going to make it Jesus the Party Animal, but I thought, you know, that, that's kind of an 80s term. That's not really something that we use anymore, uh, party animal. But... No big deal. It's, it's no big deal. Just just for just for your records, if if uh, for Kurt, you know, for the website, uh, Jesus parties with sinners because uh, Jesus is crazy like that. We've seen him do some crazy things, right? We've we've seen him kind of challenge the status quo, which is something that Jesus was really really good at doing. He had a way of just getting under people's skin. Don't you hate it when people get under your skin? You know, you've got your own way of doing things, you've got your routine, you've got your worldview and everything, and somebody puts something in there and you're like, oh, I hate that. That's true, but I don't like it. And it gets under your skin. But that's something that Jesus was really, really good at. Have you ever noticed that about him? I mean, if you read through the Bible, it's hard to miss that that was something that Jesus was, uh, was always doing. He'd, he'd ruffle people's feathers almost everywhere he went. And in our lesson last week, we saw him ruffle the feathers of the scribes who were there when Jesus uh, forgave the paralytic. This guy gets lowered in through the ceiling while Jesus is teaching, and Jesus says, I forgive you. And so they're thinking, is this guy out of his mind? The scribes are sitting there thinking, is this guy out of his mind? Nobody, no man has the authority to forgive sins. Nobody except God. Only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus did the unexpected. He proved that he had the authority to forgive sins by doing something that only God could do, healing the paralytic. And a lot of times it says Jesus touched somebody and healed them, but he didn't even touch the paralytic. He just said, get up, get up, go home. And that's all it, that's all it took. And he healed him. And people's feathers got ruffled. The scribes were thinking, what is going on here? Now, there's something else that we've seen Jesus do that might have been considered uh, kind of unexpected, kind of challenging the status quo. He called four fishermen to be his disciples, four fishermen of all people. I mean, these are rough characters. Uh, They smell bad. They probably smell like fish. Uh, If you guys can be around fish all day long and smell it, I don't have a sense of smell, so I have no idea what it's like, but I know that people complain, oh, wow, it smells so fishy in here. Yeah, these disciples, they smell like fish. Uh, They're uneducated. You know, you, you don't have to have a master's degree to go out and fish. And back in that time, yeah, that's kind of what they did. If, if somebody didn't have, you know, a, a real high education, you know, you, you got to make a living. So they went out and they fished. Uh, these, these are big and strong guys. And you know what? They probably eat with their elbows on the table. So, yeah, these guys, <laughs> the, the, this is challenging the status quo. But Jesus calls them and he tells them that he will make them become something else. He will make them become fishers of men. And we saw that the implication there was that their personalities would remain intact. They would stay who they essentially are, but Jesus would make them something else. I mean, who can do that? Jesus can. Jesus has the patience for it. Uh, And I came across an article this week on team building principles. Um, as, as I was doing research for this lesson, and the author listed the 12 C's of team building. You ever notice, you, you never find like the, the 25 Q's? 
you know, they probably couldn't come up with that many words. But, yeah, I always think, you know, whenever the, you find the 12 C's or the 5 A's of, of whatever, it's like, yeah, somebody just put their thesaurus to good use. But, anyway, the, the 12 C's of team building. Um, well, let's back up a little bit. Because we're seeing that Jesus is building something of a team. And if you have two or three years to put a team together to do something that's really important, what kinds of people would you personally look for to join you in what you're doing? Well, according to this article, the attributes that you want to look for are things like character, confidence, commitment, control, collaboration, competence, and a bunch of other C words. Gotta love the thesaurus. Uh, Character and competence. Uh, As I was going through this list and looking for things that Peter and Andrew and James and John definitely are not, character and competence, and and this gets fleshed out in in all the gospel narratives, character and and competence are things that these guys didn't have. So obviously this list wasn't put together by Jesus because Simon and all, all the other guys weren't called on the basis of their character or their competence. Uh, in fact, we see that they rarely exhibit those qualities, and yet Jesus calls them, follow me, follow me. Now, do you think that ruffled some feathers? Do you think people's feathers were ruffled when Jesus called four fishermen to join him? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the religious leaders unquestionably would have had some ruffled feathers about this. I mean, a lot of the, the older religious leaders would have remembered back to the time when Jesus was just 13 years old, and he's in the temple, and he's teaching them. This 13-year-old kid is bringing them to school and teaching them. And they're thinking, wow, the future for Israel must be so bright. This guy is brilliant. I can't wait to see what this guy grows up and does with his ministry. And so the first thing that Jesus does is he calls these four rough characters to join him. And you've got to guess that the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders are thinking, wait a minute, me, I'm a better guy than than these guys. Or or what, what about this guy? This guy over here, he's showing so much promise. Can you imagine what Jesus could do with somebody like this? This guy's really righteous, and Jesus is calling these fishermen. Wow, yeah. What was he doing? It was scandalous. It was scandalous for him to call four fishermen. Well, what we're going to see today is that Jesus isn't done calling people to him, to follow him. And in fact, he's going to find someone who is probably even rougher than a fisherman, tougher than a fisherman, viewed more lowly in society than almost anybody else. And if you find yourself wondering why Jesus is calling the lowest, basest elements of society to follow him, uh, you're not alone. I've spent, I had spent several years wondering that. Why did Jesus call these guys? I mean, of all the people, you see other people following him, but he's calling these guys specifically. Why? Well, hopefully we'll have a solid answer for that before too long here. So Jesus has just spent um, the day in Simon Peter and Andrew's house teaching, right? That's what we saw in the last lesson. And uh, the, heal, the, the healing of the paralytic, the paralytic who was lowered in through the ceiling. And so um, I, I'm just taking a guess here, but I, I would guess that the rest of the day Jesus spent fixing up the roof. I don't know. Hey, Jesus, you're the guy who, who can heal. They were brought in from, you know, because of what you can do, so you take this. And I imagine that Jesus had a servant's heart enough to say, I'll be happy to do that. Or he could have just said, Fixed. We don't know. Anyway, let's see where Mark uh, brings us in the text next with our next couple verses. Chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And he, that is Jesus, we're talking about Jesus here. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. 
As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Jesus said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, this is the guy, this, this Levi guy, is more commonly referred to and recognized as Matthew. And we don't really have any idea. There's no record in Scripture of when his name got changed from Levi to Matthew. But I think there's good reason to, to believe that Jesus probably gave him this new name, Matthew, instead of Levi. Just like he renamed Simon Peter. Uh, just like he called James and John the sons of thunder. It wasn't uncommon for Jesus to give people a new name because he made them a new person. And so uh, I, I think that he probably is the one who gave Levi this new name, Matthew. And Matthew means a gift from God. Now, Levi, or, or Matthew, uh, was a tax collector. A tax collector. And he lived and he operated in Capernaum. And I am sure that this is not the first encounter that Jesus and Levi or Matthew have. I'm sure that Levi knows who Jesus is. He, he's, he's seen him. He's, he's probably heard him. Remember that the whole town had come to see Jesus heal people. Uh, Simon Peter's house was so full, it was, it was overflowing with all the people from the area who were there. And so uh, there's, there's a good reason to think that um, among those who were present was Levi. It's a shot in the dark, but given the context, I think it's possible that Levi had been there to see Jesus healing people and to hear his teaching, to hear him teach. And something inside of Levi had probably been stirred really, really deep down in his heart. And so as Jesus was teaching in the house, I can just imagine that as he's teaching, he looks across the room and there's Levi with his head down, maybe crying knowing this guy is, is something that I can't touch. I, I don't deserve to be in this guy's presence. I think there's probably something in Levi that recognized that he was in the presence of God. Something was causing him to feel the, the weight of the world raining down on him in conviction, heartfelt conviction, and he couldn't look Jesus in the eyes as Jesus taught because of who he was and what he had done. You see, as a tax collector, Levi would have been probably part of the most hated group in all of Israel uh, because tax collectors worked on behalf of the Roman Empire. And the Jews hated the Roman Empire because they were kind of in, in bondage to the Roman Empire. And so the tax collectors would collect money from the Jews to support the Roman Empire's presence in the region. In Israel, all the things that the Roman Empire was doing and, and keeping Israel uh, in captivity, yeah, the, the tax collectors were helping to support that. I mean, if you think that people hate tax collectors and the IRS today, uh, it couldn't even compare to how much they would have hated tax collectors in that time. Because back then, tax collectors would have been viewed as traitors. They weren't just taking money from people. They were representing tyranny. They were representing oppression. And not only that, but, uh, but tax collectors would have to be thugs as well. They were rough, tough characters. You wouldn't want to meet them in a dark alley because the Roman Empire didn't pay them. Can you imagine that? They didn't pay them. So how did they make a living? Well, the Roman Empire said, we want you to collect X amount, whatever that might be, and whatever you can collect on top of that is yours to keep. 
And so what they'd do is they'd go around and they'd think, okay, well, the Roman Empire wants me to get $100 per person, so I'm going to shoot for $200 per person. That way, it's worth my time and effort. And maybe he had a gang of thugs who went around with him collecting money from people. So Levi was that kind of guy. He'd go to people and tell them, I need X amount from you now. I'm not waiting any longer. And they'd say, well, I I don't have that much money. Uh, The Romans demand too much from us. And I can imagine that Levi would have responded with something like, listen, buddy, when I want your opinion, I'll beat it out of you. That's the kind of person that Levi would have been. That's the type of people tax collectors were. They were thieves. They were extremely corrupt. And so Levi represented the most hated element of all of Jewish society. And yet Jesus looks past all of that. He knows what Levi's done. He knows what Levi does for a living. He knows what the tax collectors do. But he looks past it, and he sees a man whose heart is overflowing with sorrow, overflowing with conviction about what he's done and how he's lived. And he sees a guy who just wants to draw near to God. But he's come to, the, he's come to accept the reality that nobody, and he believes even God, nobody wants to have anything to do with him. He sees a man who says, Jesus sees a man who says, I want to follow Jesus, but that guy is too good for me. He would never let me follow him. If he knew just half the things that I've done in my life, half the things that I've done to people to make a living. Now notice that that Mark tells us that there are all of these people following after Jesus, but Levi or or, or Matthew uh, isn't one of them. It says all these people were following Jesus, but then Jesus passes him. So Levi wasn't among those who are following Jesus. Now picture this with me. Levi has heard and seen Jesus. He knows who Jesus is. He knows that he's standing in the presence of God when he's around Jesus. And there's a longing inside of him to follow Jesus, but he's afraid to even get close to this guy again. And so as Jesus passes by, Picture this with me. Jesus is walking by him, and their eyes meet for just a second. And all of a sudden, Levi is, is overcome with, with sorrow again, and he just glances down. Instantly, the strong-arming thug of a guy is reduced to something of a baby, just on the verge of tears. Here's a man who not only feels unloved and is unloved, but he feels unlovable. Right in front of all these people who are following him, Jesus comes up to him. He saw Levi glance away. He saw the conviction in his heart. And so Jesus comes over and he leans beside him and he says, follow me. Follow me. Two, two simple words, follow me. Here's a guy who had been alienated from society, who felt alienated from God, and he's the man that Jesus would rename a gift from God. Can you imagine how precious that name must have been to him? To be called a gift from God when there was a time in his life when he felt just so far away from God and unlovable by God. See, Jesus hasn't distanced distanced himself from sinners. Instead, he's seeking them. He's going out and finding them and calling them and instructing them. Follow me. 
See, the self-righteous people were thinking that Jesus you know, can't hang out with people like Matthew or, or, or Levi because somebody like Matthew, whoa, he, he's a rough guy, Jesus. You know, if you, birds of a feather flock together, you know, if you hang out with this guy long enough, he's going he's gonna to rub off on you. But Jesus knows that the opposite is true, that the more they hang out with Jesus, the more he's going to rub off on them. And I'd say that he's choosing to invite people like the fishermen and like Matthew to follow him because these are the people who are least likely to change by society's standards, by society's perception. These are the guys that you don't want to touch. But Jesus says, oh, yes, I do. I can change these guys. I love these guys. I can change the heart of anyone. So give me the rebels. Give me the rejects. Give me the misfits. Give me the hated and the haters. Give them all to me. I can change them because I love them. And so Jesus calls Matthew. Now, he doesn't really invite him. It's not... Hey, Levi, do you want to follow me? It's follow me. It's imperative. It's in the imperative tense, meaning it's not really optional. Follow me. So this guy who robbed and extorted people for a living becomes Jesus' fifth disciple because his response is radical obedience. I know who you are, Jesus. So whatever you say, I'll do. Radical obedience. Obedience. Is that cool? I mean, if Jesus can take this, this thug, this, this guy who is really hated by everybody, and, if, and call him to follow him and use him, he says, you know, Jesus is thinking, you know, everybody sees this rough guy, but I see a guy who's extremely precise with his records, and this is the guy who's going to write about me. And for thousands of years, people are going to read about me because of this guy. So is that cool? Jesus looks past the external appearance, and he calls him. And if he can do that, I imagine that he can call a Las Vegas table games dealer with a bad attitude and a cursing problem to follow him too. Hallelujah. All right, let's see where Mark goes with this. Verse 15. And it happened that he was reclining at a table in his house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. Now this, we don't exactly know when this happens. This could be the same night that he called Levi or Matthew to follow him. It could have been the next day. It could have been, you know, the weekend. You know, we we really don't know, uh, but it hasn't been long. Uh, Matthew has experienced and seen for himself the power of Jesus' love and forgiveness and he looks at the people who are around him. And he says, I have felt this life that Jesus has given me. And as I look around, I see dead people. I see people who are in death. And they don't even realize it. They're like zombies. They're just walking around and they have no idea what it's like to live. And if Jesus can change me, he can change them. They need to meet this guy. They need to meet Jesus because they need Forgiveness, as much as I did. And so Matthew throws a party. He he figures that that's the best way to, 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 that's the next move. That's the next logical move for him. He's going to throw a party, and he's going to invite Jesus and the four fishermen. So he throws 
this party, and he invites them, but he also invites his tax collector thugs and friends and other sinners. We don't know exactly who that is. Maybe it was prostitutes. Maybe, who knows? Maybe, maybe it was just other low elements, other fishermen, other uh, who knows what. Sinners. General category, sinners. And it says there were many of them. Many of who? Well, that's probably referring to disciples, but grammatically, it could also refer to the fact that there were many tax collectors and sinners there who were following Jesus. Now, think about this for, for just a second. This is a, a rough crowd, right? Um, if, if we were to apply this to our situation today, our, our culture today, this would be like me leading some thug, some gang member, drug-dealing thug to Jesus and him saying, Wow, I'm alive. I'm going to throw a party. And Toby, I want you to be there. All my homies, they're all going to be there. Are you going to come? You've got to be there. They've got to, they've, got to, they've got to see what you bring to them in Jesus. I mean, I would be scared out of my mind. I'd be like, uh, let me see if I can get four fishermen to go with me or something. <laughs> yeah, I'd be scared. But Jesus, Jesus comes, and, and he brings his disciples with him. Uh, and they party with Matthew and his tax collector and sinner friends. They eat together. Maybe they even had some drink together. We, we don't know, we, but we can only guess, and we know that tax collectors probably would have been looking for an opportunity to get a little tipsy. We don't know. We don't know exactly what, ha- what, what happened, but Jesus is reclining at the table with them. And if, I'd say if we were to put this in a modern-day setting, picture Jesus in... Uh, in, a, in a room with a low ceiling with smoke all around his head, uh, you know, cigarette uh, butts all over the table, beer cans and beer bottles all over the place. People would be getting rowdy. You know, maybe they'd play a game of poker or something. I mean, who knows? That, if we were to apply this to, to the modern-day setting, that's the situation that Jesus finds himself in, and he is totally at peace with it. He's just reclining at the table. He's hanging out with them. Now, there's a church here in Linwood, actually, that uh, in, the, in the past year has started meeting in bars for their services. They, they actually meet in a bar for their worship services. What's the difference between what they're doing and what Jesus is doing? There's really not a significant difference. These guys took a lot of flack for what they did. In fact, uh, Mark Driscoll uh, encouraged one of his small groups at one time to start meeting in a bar, and he took all kinds of flack for that. But there's really not a significant difference because what Jesus is doing is he's going someplace where he's going to be surrounded by sinners, surrounded by people who don't even maybe realize the fact that they need him. They need him. But Matthew knows how badly his friends, co-workers, and sinners need him. Now, this group of people is probably, it's probably not the type uh, who would have been chasing along Jesus you know, as, as he was teaching on the shores. Uh, he, he taught along the shores of Capernaum, but um, you know, they're having their chance to meet him now, thanks to Matthew. See, Matthew was kind of like a bridge between Jesus and this circle, this social circle of thugs. You've heard me say it before, and I'll say it again. You cannot bring everyone to Christ, but you can bring Christ to everyone. See the difference? You can't bring everyone to Christ, but you can bring Christ to everyone. There's a huge difference, and that's what Matthew is doing here. He's bringing, his, he's bringing Jesus to a place where his friends are going to be gathered. 
And just like Matthew was a bridge from Jesus to his circle of unbelieving friends, Jesus is calling you as his follower to do the exact same thing, to be like a bridge into a circle of unbelievers. Three things, three, three things that you need to do if you want to do that successfully. And we see Jesus doing these things here. The first thing you need to do is find common ground with that group of people. Find common ground. What, what does Jesus have in common with these tax collectors and these sinners who are all there? They're all friends with Matthew. Jesus is friends with Matthew, and his disciples are friends with Matthew, and these tax collectors are friends with Matthew. Common ground. So the first thing that you do is you find common ground. The second thing that you would do is invest in those people. Invest your time. Invest your energy based on the common ground. Develop a relationship with them based on the common ground by investing in them. And the third thing, out of that established relationship, you earn the right to minister to the needs of those people. Because people want to see that you are a friend, first and foremost. If, you, if they don't see that, really what you're saying to them, it's kind of going to go in one ear and out the other. That's just the way people are. If they don't know that you care, they don't care what you know. And so the third thing to do is to earn the right to minister to the needs of the people based on the relationship, which is based on the common ground. So, number one, find common ground. Number two, invest in and build a relationship based on that common ground. And number three, you earn the right over time. After your investment of time and energy and everything, you earn the right to minister to their needs. Let's keep going. Matthew chapter 2, or Mark chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, to Jesus' disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is a classic interaction. This is, this is one for the ages. This line... It's just classic. He couldn't have said it better, what his whole purpose was. Some of the Pharisees are close enough to the house to see and hear everything that's going on, and they're outside pointing fingers. Oh, Jesus is in there. That's, remember that guy when he was 13, what he, what he was teaching? Look what he's doing now. And so they pull Jesus' disciples aside. Maybe one of them goes outside to use the bathroom or something. I, I don't know. I guess you know, they didn't have indoor plumbing back then. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so they, they, they pull his disciples aside, Jesus' disciples aside, and they say, they, they start scolding him. They say, don't, don't you guys know who you're hanging out with in there? Does Jesus know who he's hanging out with in there? Does he know who these people are? Does he know what they do? They can't believe that Jesus would actually be getting close and personal interacting with tax collectors and sinners. Now notice between verses 15 and 17, the term tax collectors and sinners is used a total of three times. I'm guessing Mark wants us to realize that Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. He says it three times. Uh, Mark wants us to see that there's not a lot of salt. There's not a lot of light in the room. But Mark wants us to know that where there's darkness, Jesus is ready to get salty and shiny. So the Pharisees who are present can't figure out why Jesus would be here of all places. I mean, if you're going to be hanging out with somebody, why wouldn't he be hanging out with us, is what they're thinking. 
What fellowship hath light with darkness? Ever hear that? Yeah, I mean, sadly, that's, that's the mentality that a lot of Christians actually carry, uh, which stems from a misunderstanding of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, where we read, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Well, if we look at what Paul's really saying there, Paul is addressing a problem that the church in Corinth was undergoing. They, they had these guys who were coming in and saying, I, I have the authority of the apostles. Now, this is what we're going to do. This is the direction that we're going to take this. And Paul's saying, get out from under them. These guys don't represent the kingdom of light. These guys represent the kingdom of darkness. He's, he's, so he's not saying, you know, you should find a Christian alternative to Facebook or, uh, you know, you shouldn't be listening to, uh, you know, rock music. You should listen to, to rock music only if there are about three Jesuses per minute, uh, roughly, uh, you know, in, in which case that makes it acceptable. No, he, Paul's simply saying, don't become a part of something that represents darkness, but continue to represent the kingdom of light wherever you go. And you have to have leadership who represent the kingdom of light, which wasn't going on there in Corinth. So, see, this isn't scandalous at all. But it is for a self-righteous personality, which is exactly what the Pharisees represent here. Finger pointers. People who are thinking, you know, he's in there reclining at a table. Shouldn't, shouldn't his finger be doing a little bit more action? Shouldn't he be scolding them for being such a bunch of, you know, thugs and, and drunks and lowlifes? Shouldn't he be... Pointing at him. And so the disciples come back inside to talk to Jesus about this. This shows just how clueless these guys are. Jesus hasn't completely rubbed off on them yet. They're kind of confused. They're thinking, whoa, we better go talk to Jesus about this. So they go in and they talk to Jesus after taking a little bit of a tongue lashing from the Pharisees. And Jesus' answer is very insightful. When When he's asked, Jesus, do you know who these guys are? The Pharisees want to know. Do you know who these people are? Jesus responds, by basically saying, yeah, of course I know who these guys are. That's why I am here. Yeah, the people in here are messed up. It's kind of a spiritual ER. And that's why I'm here, because I'm the only one who can fix them up. See, to, to avoid this group of people would be like a doctor who says, you know, I want to give something back to the world. And, you know, because I'm so successful in, in what I've done, uh, I'm going to go on a mission trip and, and help, help heal people. Maybe, uh, you know, I'll, I'll bring some of my equipment that they don't have over there, and I'll be able to do things over there that they can't do. And so he goes to the, the richest, healthiest city in the world. What, is that what a good doctor would do if that's his goal? No. Where would he go? He'd go someplace where there's seriously a need, where people are sick. And everywhere he turns, he'll be able to use his skills to heal people. Otherwise, it would be a waste of time, right? It would be a waste of time to go to the healthiest city in the world. And it would be a waste of Jesus' time to hang around with people who think that they're so good that they couldn't possibly need him. I don't need need Jesus. I mean, I'm, I'm doing all right between me and God by myself. And the irony here is that there are two groups of people tax collectors and sinners as one group, and Pharisees as the other group. Two groups of people who are both far away from God. There's one group who thinks they're close to God, but they're actually far away, and there's the group which would be more likely to realize that they're far from God who are actually close to him, who are actually within his reach. And the difference between the two groups, really, 
is self-perception. Self-perception, the way they see themselves. The ones who don't realize their distance from God say, I'm doing great keeping God happy all by myself. And those who realize their distance from God are more likely to say, God's not going to be happy with me with anything that I do. Let me put it in a way that flows with the text. There are two groups of people, and every person in both groups has this virus, has this, this illness. One group says, I'm not sick, I'm doing just fine even though they do have it. And the other group of people says, I'm sick, and I know that I'm going to die. See the difference? Which group is more likely to see a doctor? The group that realizes, I am sick. So the point that Jesus is making is that people who refuse to examine themselves closely enough to see that they're sick don't seek out a doctor. And people who realize Uh, People who don't realize that they're far from God don't take the steps that are necessary to bring themselves close to him. He's saying, my time is better spent with people who realize they are far away from God. Now, the Pharisees made themselves feel awfully good about themselves with their finger pointing, with their scolding, with their tongue lashing. They'd feel good about themselves by pointing out the sins of other people without, you know, looking in the mirror and checking themselves out. And don't think for a second... Friends, don't think for a second that you and I couldn't fall into that same trap so, so easily. The mindset where we're ready to judge people based on their actions, based not on God's word, but based on our own personal convictions, what we think is right and wrong for us, what the Holy Spirit maybe has led us to feel conviction about. We point fingers and give tongue lashings to people who aren't being given those same personal convictions. See, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to do his job, to do his job of leading fellow Christians to put convictions on people's conscience. Now, that doesn't mean that we should tolerate sin. The Bible is is pretty clear. There's a zero tolerance policy for sin, and that's something that we should call people out on. But I'm talking about personal opinions, personal convictions, ways that the Holy Spirit is specifically dealing with an individual. Uh, you know, there's no commandment that says, thou shalt not party with unbelievers. And so it's okay for Jesus to do that. There's nothing specific that says, don't hang out with a bunch of tax collectors. No, this is an issue of personal conviction, and the Pharisees are holding Jesus to their own personal convictions, their own personal standards rather than a biblical standard. They're imposing their personal interpretations, opinions, and personal convictions on somebody else. And we're about to see more of the same thing. Verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came to him and said, came to Jesus, and said, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, real quick, just refresher. John refers to John the Baptist, not John the Apostle. Uh, John the Baptist, who has been betrayed and taken into custody by Herod. So the first group of people that we see here is a group with no leadership whatsoever. They're, they're, just, they're aimless. They're, they're wandering without a leader. They're like a ship without a rudder. Uh, sounds a lot like the Occupy movement, right? Um, so John's disciples and the Pharisees are in the middle of a fast, and Jesus and his disciples are in the middle of a feast. One group, or two groups are are fasting, and then there's this third group who's feasting. The first thing that we should note here is that there is never, ever an explicit command 
to fast. Not a single one. Um, yeah, people did it, but God never explicitly commanded or expected it. The fast was actually based on an interpretation of Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29. It still is. I looked up Yom Kippur on, uh, on the internet, and they, they trace it back to this verse where it says, do not work on this day of atonement. Well, and so the Pharisees got together and they said, well, what does it mean? What does it mean to not work on this day? And so somebody said, well, I think it means you don't eat. And so it was just kind of tradition. You don't eat on the day of atonement. And actually, that's still something that some Jews do to this very day. And it was one day a year. That's it. It was just one day per year. The Pharisees, however, abused the fast. Instead of using it as a way to remember their need for atonement, instead of using it as a way to please God, to focus on God, they're using it as a way of demonstrating how righteous they are. They didn't use it to please God. They used it to please people. They weren't trying to impress God. They were trying to impress people and themselves. Oh, do you see how much, how, how long it's been since I've eaten? I'm suffering so much. Oh, Dude, you are not suffering. I'm so hungry. Man, see how godly I am? Yeah, based on their fast. And in fact, the Pharisees didn't just fast once a year. No, there's an indication that they fasted twice a week. Some, some historical records uh, would tell you that they fasted every Monday and Thursday. And when Jesus is kind of mocking one of the Pharisees in his prayer at the temple, um, he, he says, I fast twice a week and pay tithes on all I get. So there's a good reason to think that the Pharisees didn't just fast the one day of the year. They did it twice per week just to show how righteous they are. Now, here's the crazy thing. Despite how obvious Jesus makes it, and, and Paul would, would flesh out in the epistles, despite how obvious it is that it's sinful to impose your personal convictions and your personal opinions on others, Christians do that very same thing even today. They've been doing it for 2,000 years. And if, if, if you can go back before Jesus, the Jews were doing the same thing, imposing personal convictions on others. And friends, that is sin. That's, that's taking the job of the Holy Spirit on yourself. Now, I'm not talking about uh, your, your opinion on whether Jesus is God or not. That's something that we call a non-negotiable. It is an essential. I'm talking about things like Calvinism or Arminianism. Well, uh, or, or, or what kind of music a person listens to. I mean, some people will say, you know, you shouldn't be listening to rock music or you shouldn't be listening to rap music. And hear me out. I, I would say that there is some wisdom in not filling your mind with trash, Uh, not filling your mind with sinful descriptions of activities because the more you fill your mind with that kind of stuff, the more likely you are to actually live that type of stuff out. But it's the job of the Holy Spirit and and parents, uh, if if you're younger than 18, to deal with the individual about what type of music they listen to. For some, uh, it might be saying, well, you know, you should wear your Sunday best when you go to church. And in fact, I was listening to Mark Driscoll talking about an experience that he had just a couple weeks ago. He went down to Georgia to speak at this conference, and a youth leader uh, kind of boasted to him, well, our church kicked this kid out because he came with shorts, and we told him, you can't come in here if you're wearing shorts. So there again, there's nothing in Scripture that says, thou shalt not wear shorts to church, but there they were, enforcing, imposing their personal convictions on this kid and telling him, "You you can't come to God unless you're dressed in your Sunday best heartbreaking. Or um, for some, it might be raising a hand. 
in, in, in worship. You ever go into a church and it's like, hmm? It's, it's shoulder height. As long as I don't go above the shoulder, I'm not getting too charismatic or Pentecostal. Yeah, those, those are personal convictions. Those are things that are between the Holy Spirit and a person. They're not between uh, people and that person. Uh, to me, it's just the most ridiculous concept ever conceived, um, that, that you have to fit this mold, because really what you're saying when you're forcing somebody else to fit your mold is, you need to become more like me, when the Bible says, you need to become more like Jesus. So really, it's sinful. It is sinful when you impose your personal convictions on non-essential matters on somebody else. Um, my kids went to a private Christian school while we were living in North Carolina while I was going to seminary. And, um, and the rule at this school was that boys had to have their hair cut above their ears. Look at Caleb now. Yeah, he's got, he's got the longest hair in my family. Uh, so no long hair, guys, uh, at this school. And what purpose did that serve? What purpose did that really serve? Because my wife and I keep an eye on uh, which friends Caleb has kept in touch with through Facebook. And it's clear from the Facebook accounts of these kids who are going to this school that the majority of them are not godly at all. But they've got the right haircut. They've got the right haircut. But it's, it's clear that some of those kids hate God. They're already to that point where they, they hate God. Why? Hear me out, and don't forget this. Because legalism is the perfect condition for breeding hatred against God. Legalism is the perfect condition for breeding hatred against God. You guys know that uh, I've kind of taken up gardening a little bit. And uh, over the last, uh, what, 10 months since I've been here. And one of the things you do, you buy, you buy a packet of seeds, right? And how do you know when you should plant them or how deep you should plant them or what conditions are, are prime? You look on the back. You look on the back of the packet and it'll say, well, you know, it should be uh, no, you know, the temperature shouldn't be any lower than 56.3 degrees and shouldn't be higher than 105 and it should be watered every other day but not, not soaking wet, you know, so on and so forth. And friends, if you were to have a packet of seeds that said hatred toward God, legalism would be one of those conditions on the back. Legalism will lead to hatred of God. It's, I would say, actually, and this is just my opinion, it's the number one catalyst for breeding a heart that will grow cold toward God. Whenever I hear a preacher giving a, a sermon full of opinions and convictions, I've I, I got to admit, it just kind of makes me sick. And I, I, there's a time and place for your opinion, but tell me what the Word says. And of course, there is a place for that in a message. There is a place to, to give your opinion, of course, but it should be made clear that that's the person's opinion or conviction. And it absolutely shouldn't be the focal point of the message. Uh, Christina and I went to this church in Arkansas where the pastor was preparing his message while the worship was going on. And his message was, you should be dancing around and waving your hands while you're worshiping. Personal opinion, personal conviction. It's fine for somebody to do that. But everybody else might not be led by the Holy Spirit to be doing the same thing. Now, I know when I hear something like that, that somebody, when they're trying to force somebody else into their own mold, I know that that person probably hasn't experienced, fully experienced God's grace the way they need to the way they need to. But just so everyone knows, that's just my opinion. See, see how easy that is? It's, it's, it's as easy as saying that that's my opinion. 
Yeah, it's my opinion. They, they need to experience God's grace in a closer way because legalism doesn't bring people closer to God. Imposing your own opinions on people doesn't bring people closer to God. Anyway, fasting. It's optional. It's between the individual and the Lord. It's not between anybody else. No more, no less. It's just between them and the Lord. There's no requirement to do it, but the Pharisees did it regularly as a way of impressing themselves and each other. Kind of like, uh, you know, in gym class, guys doing push-up contests, except it's only stupider than that. So um, John's disciples are playing along with it because they don't have a leader. So they're, they're, they're kind of just looking around. They're aimless. And so, oh, the Pharisees are fasting. We, we better fast. But word gets to Jesus that the Pharisees want to know why Jesus and his disciples also aren't fasting. Now listen to how Jesus responds. Next verse. Verses. Uh, verses 19 and 20. And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. See, the purpose... Back in Leviticus chapter 16, the purpose of doing no work, which could mean fasting, uh, it could mean you don't walk more than a mile, that's an area of personal conviction, personal opinion uh, in that. But the purpose of doing no work on the Day of Atonement was to honor and remember the importance of the atonement, of the sacrificial system for the forgiveness of sins. But the arrival of the Messiah brought about the reality of the forgiveness of sins. And so therefore, there was reason for them to party. There was reason for them to rejoice. See, fasting is a way of mourning. Can you imagine somebody coming to your birthday party and you, you offer them a piece of cake and they're like, sorry, man, I'm, I'm fasting. No, fasting is a way of mourning. You don't fast when you're celebrating and rejoicing. You don't fast, you, you feast when you're celebrating. So Jesus isn't saying that it's wrong to fast. He's not saying that at all. He's emphasizing the fact that there's a time and place for it and that it should be done at the right time and most importantly, just with the right motivations, the right motives. Jesus knew that the time for mourning was coming when he would be taken away from them. What day would be appropriate for a fast? The day of the crucifixion, the day that Jesus is taken into custody and put on a cross and hung publicly on this cross, yeah, I'd say that's a, that's a time to mourn. But the resurrection negated the need to mourn or fast because it's a reason to celebrate. So Jesus' response is basically to tell them, hey, guys, this isn't an open casket funeral. You know, I, I, I bring life, not death. We're celebrating life here. We're not mourning death. It's a wedding. He likens it to a wedding, and he's the bridegroom. Have you ever walked into a church service that looked more like a funeral than a wedding? I have. It's not very enticing. Definitely not exciting. You don't raise your hand past shoulder level there, for sure. So Jesus follows this up by giving two illustrations which serve to demonstrate how ridiculous the idea of fasting in his presence is. Let's continue. Uh, verse 21. He says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the, old from, or the new from the old, and a worse tear results. So we need to understand what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I, I, I've brought something new. He's ushering in the new covenant. He's showing them a new way of relating 
to God, of interacting with God, expressing their faith. He's saying here, basically, you can't take the old, rigid traditions of the, of the, of the old covenant, the, the Mosaic law, you can't take those old, rigid traditions from Judaism and combine it with the newness, the life, the freedom of the gospel. See, if you have an old cloth that's, let's say you've got an old cloth that's been washed a whole bunch of times and it's already done its share of shrinking, right? Uh, but it gets a hole in it over time. And so what do you do? You put, you put a patch on it. Now, if you put a patch of new cloth on it and then you go to wash it, see, the, the old cloth isn't going to shrink anymore. But what's going to happen to the new cloth? The new cloth is going to shrink. And so what's going to happen? You're going to have an even bigger hole to patch up because the, the new cloth is going to do some shrinking and it's going to pull at the weak edges of the old. See, the gospel is about God's grace. Jewish traditions like fasting were about being outwardly religious by keeping rules. And if somebody didn't keep the rules, finger pointing. So you can't put those two things together in a meaningful way. You can't put grace and strict adherence to a set of rules together in a meaningful way. Law and grace are kind of opposite each other, but they both express different sides of God's nature. Just like there are two sides of a coin, there are different sides of God's nature. The law, the law of Moses emphasizes the utter righteousness and the justice of God, the holiness of God, and it shows that we can't please him on our own because we can't keep all the rules. There are like 600 and something rules it's hard enough just to memorize them. After you've memorized them, you've probably broken half of them. And James says, if you've broken even one, you've broken the whole thing. It's, it's not like a puzzle where, you know, if you've got a puzzle and you take one piece out, well, you can kind of still see what it is. No, if you take one piece out of that puzzle, it's like the whole thing just collapses. Kind of like the game with the, with the logs that you stack on top of each other. And you pull one out and the whole thing goes, Psh! that's what the law is like. You break one little piece and the whole thing is destroyed. So that's what the law does. It shows us God's justice and our inability to keep up with it. But Jesus came in to demonstrate the other side of God's nature, God's love, God's mercy, and his grace, which are found by nothing more than just trusting in Jesus for your salvation. The law can only condemn us, but the freedom of Jesus is the only thing that can free us from that condemnation by grace, through faith. Let's wrap this up by looking at the second illustration that Jesus gives. Verse 22. Jesus says, No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the, fast, or otherwise the, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Now remember, this was, this was 2,000 years ago. Uh, there wasn't a lot of technology back then, uh, if, you, if you kids can, can believe that. They didn't have iPods, you know, n- yeah. They, they didn't even have bottles, really. Uh, they, they would have some, but they were very, very expensive. And so if somebody was going to buy wine, what they'd do is they, they'd take animal skins and sew those together and put the, the, the juice in there, seal it up, and it would do the, the fermenting. It would go through the fermenting process in the skin, um, in, the, in this animal skin, and these skins would become brittle pretty quickly. Uh, so wine was put into the skins uh, while it was almost fresh, and the majority of the fermentation process happened inside of the skin. Now, while it's fermenting, it's putting out all these gases, which is making the skin 
push out. It, it's stretching out all the skins. So when, uh, when you're done drinking all the wine that's inside of the skin, what do you have? You have a stretched out skin, right? It's just a stretched out skin. Um, what would happen if you were to take that stretched out skin and fill it with new wine? It's already been stretched out, right? It would burst as the gases caused it to expand even further. So what's Jesus trying to say with this, with this illustration? He's saying that the legalistic confines of the traditions of Judaism cannot contain the new wine, the new covenant, the gospel. Following Jesus and being obedient to the gospel means living out the grace that we have received, which means that we have to be careful about becoming so rigid in our ways that it prevents others from following the leading and the teaching of the Holy Spirit. The lesson here is not to be a finger pointer, really. Not to let our traditions, which are optional, stand in the way of a person's relationship with God. Now, again, I'm not talking about sin. That's, that's something different. I'm talking about optional convictions. When we enforce those on others, we make it really hard for them to have a healthy relationship with God. Legalistic traditions are an enemy. They're an adversary. And they serve as a stumbling block for people on their way to God. And they use guilt rather than grace to motivate people and to stir their hearts toward repentance and faith. Guilt cannot and guilt never will drive a person to believe in Jesus. That's just not the way it works. You can guilt somebody to death. It'll not, they'll just dig in their heels. That's just the way people are. You cannot force someone to get closer to Jesus. But grace, grace, that, that's something that, that God can use. Where he's got the freedom to direct and convict an individual, individually. Legalism just turns into a box that a person gets stuck in and needs to grow beyond. So I think the question that Mark and Jesus want us to be asking ourselves at this point is this. Are you trying to keep God happy or make God happy by keeping rules? Or grace? Are you listening to the convictions of the Holy Spirit and being obedient to those convictions by putting your faith in Jesus? and receiving his grace, and walking in it day by day, being obedient to him. That's part of the Great Commission. That's part of the Great Commission. The Great Great Commission is that you make disciples and teach them to obey. See, if somebody won't obey, they're not being a disciple. So the call here is to listen to the Holy Spirit on optional matters and not force others into your mold but it did Jesus' mold. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the wisdom that Jesus showed in this situation and the lessons that we walk away from. God, forgive us for the times when we have imposed our personal convictions on others. Lord, we we are broken vessels, and on our own, we can't create anything except broken vessels. So forgive us for the times when we've done that, Lord. Prevent us from doing that. Teach us and convict us to walk by your grace and to reflect the grace that you've shown us. In Jesus' name. Amen.
This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.